Good morning. It is great to be sharing with you again this morning as we kick off our Christmas series, as Dave said, his name is Jesus. And this morning we're reading from Luke 1 to 25. So if you have a Bible with you or on your phone, follow along. If not, the words should appear behind me on the screen. Luke 1 verses 1 to 25. Many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us, just as they were handed down to us by those who from the first were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. With this in mind, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, I too decided to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty of the things you have been taught. In the time of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah, who belonged to the priestly division of Abijah. His wife Elizabeth was also a descendant of Aaron. Both of them were righteous in the sight of God, observing all the Lord's commands and decrees decrees blamelessly. But they were childless because Elizabeth was not able to conceive, and they were both very old. Once when Zechariah's division was on duty and he was serving as priest before God, he was chosen by lot according to the custom of the priesthood to go into the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And when the time for the burning of the incense came, all the assembled worshippers were praying outside. Then an angel of the Lord appeared to him, standing at the right side of the altar of incense. When Zacharias saw him, he was startled and was gripped with fear. But the angel said to him, do not be afraid, Zacharias, your prayer has been heard. Your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you are to call him John. He will be a joy and delight to you, and many will rejoice because of his birth, for he will be great in the sight of the Lord." He is never to take wine or other fermented drink, and he'll be filled with the Holy Spirit even before he is born. He'll bring back many of, people, many of the people of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go on before the Lord in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the parents, their children, and the disobedient to the wisdom of the righteous to make ready a people prepared for the Lord." Zechariah asked the angel, how can I be sure of this? I am an old man and my wife is well long in years. The angel said to him, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God and I have been sent to speak to you and to tell you this good news. And now you will be silent and not able to speak until the day this happens because you did not believe my words, which will come true at their appointed time. Meanwhile, the people were waiting for Zechariah and wondering why he stayed so long in the temple. When he came out, he could not speak to them. They realized he had seen a vision in the temple, for he kept making signs to them, but remained unable to speak. When his time of service was completed, he returned home. After this, his wife Elizabeth became pregnant and for five months remained in seclusion. The Lord has done this for me, she said. In these days, he has shown his favor and taken away my disgrace among the people. And we thank God for his word as it still speaks to us today. If you've been following along with us, we've just finished our third block in the book of Acts in our Church Alive series. Acts is the second book of Luke's two-part volume, Luke being the first, so we're jumping back a bit here. I received the email from Dave about preaching in the Christmas series and was pretty excited, thinking, like he said, I'd be talking about the Christmas story, probably beginning with Mary. And then I see my passage and I'm like, that's the birth of John the Baptist foretold. And I thought, maybe Dave's had no sleep again. 
Little did I know that the last laugh was with me. But it is that time of the year again that the world goes mad with buying presents and I realize that I'm not as an organized person as I would like to think I am. I always end up feeling like I'm doing an Annika Rice challenge. Those more mature among us will understand what, who I'm referring to. And I would say that I take that after my parents. However, they have another word for it, spontaneous. Growing up, I'm sure most of you were told you were going on holidays. We were just told to pack a suitcase with clothes for every season and be ready and waiting in the car at some horrendous time of the morning, ready for a six-week adventure around Europe towing a caravan. And if you weren't ready, you were staying at home with the dog. It's funny how being disorganized actually worked in my favor as I got older, because five of us, with my nanny joining us, sometimes more, was more like an endurance test than a holiday. However, in our house, Christmas dinner was a whole different story. Mum used to give us lists, lists of jobs to do. And when it came to Christmas Eve, we were allowed to do what we wanted, go out shopping, friends, whatever it was, as long as the chores were done. And one of the reoccurring memories of my childhood that still traumatizes me was preparing the potatoes and vegetables. And mum would say, you only have to do the potatoes and vegetables, right? Like she gave my other brothers the harder jobs. And I'm like, mum, the potatoes and vegetables are half of the Christmas dinner. And I can still picture myself at the sink with two seven pound bags of potatoes, one peeler, two very sore hands, feeling very sorry for myself. And as years went on, the planning progressed to an Excel spreadsheet in which every Christmas dinner item was listed with their cooking times. Mom would go into cooking mode and you'd come into the kitchen, try to have a chat, and she'd be like, I can't talk, yes, I can't talk. Meanwhile, dad, who does not cook the whole year, becomes Jimmy Oliver. And he's like, look what I've done with the turkey. I've done it this way and this way. And he becomes obsessed with the turkey prep. And as you can imagine, after all that prep, Christmas dinner was just lovely. And I say these things because this is what this passage is all about. It's the preparation for the main event. Luke is preparing us for the main event, the birth of Jesus. And there's two things that I want to focus on from this passage. And the first is that we are people of the ordinary. I want to bring it back a bit, give, me, give you some context, so just bear with me. If you remember, Luke was a doctor. He was a missionary. He was very educated. In fact, he was referred to many times as one, of the, as one of the most important historians of the ancient world. Luke was a companion of Paul in whom he learned much from as he traveled with him on a second missionary journey from Judea to Macedonia. Luke believed that all the things that had actually happened had changed the course of the world. So it was vital to him that they were presented as clearly and unambiguously as possible. So he writes an orderly account. And when giving an orderly historical account, the place where one begins is vitally important. He doesn't begin with Jesus, nor the appearance of John the Baptist and his public ministry, but with the appearance of the angel Gabriel to Zechariah, the father of John the Baptist. Luke addresses this account to Theophilus like he does in Acts. And we don't know if Theophilus is an actual person or a reference to those who love God or how Theophilus really stood in relation to the Christian faith. But we are sure that Theophilus needed to hear what Luke had written. And so we pick up in verse five with Luke telling us that it was the time of Herod, king of Judea. And now this is not an accidental historical point because these were days of trial and days of darkness for the people of Israel. 
Although Herod was, had some magnificent accomplishments, such as rebuilding the temple and all its grandeur, he was never secure in his standing. He was paranoid about his power and authority, and he killed everyone who seemed to be a threat, including members of his own family. He was to the Jews what Nero was to the Romans. And it had been 400 years since God last spoke. Malachi spoke the last prophecy that had been uttered in Israel, telling the Israelites that they must remember and take hope in the coming Messiah and that there would be one that would prepare the way for him. Then God became silent. Not for one year, not for 10 years, but for 400 years. Think of all the history that's transpired over the last 400 years. And then we are introduced to a couple, Zachariah, a priest, and his wife, Elizabeth, who are described as righteous in the sight of God. And we read that Elizabeth was barren, just as Sarah had been barren and Hannah and the mother of Samson. Elizabeth is especially like Sarah, who was not only infertile, but also too old to bear a child at this time. And in those days, women who were barren were mocked and met with a sense of reproach. It was seen as economically disastrous as there was no children to support them in their old age and socially disastrous because barrenness was considered a judgment for sin as it was a command that every Jewish couple was to obey the Lord when they became married to be fruitful and multiply the earth. However, we are told there was no hidden sin. Nevertheless, they were still childless. Within the priesthood, there was 24 divisions, which included around 18,000 priests. And within the 18,000 priests, only 14 were given the opportunity of offering the incense on the altar during the course of a year. You don't need me to work out the mass for you, but many of the priests never had the opportunity to burn the incense, offering the prayers of the people to God. And here's Zechariah, chosen by lot to go into the temple and offer the incense. Yes, he was a priest, but he was not one of great renown. Neither by his training or his place of residence was he set apart as a cut above his peers. He had no social or economic standing. They didn't live in either of the great priest centers, the Ophel Quarter in Jerusalem or in Jericho, but some small town in the hills. I kind of picture somewhere like Cullibaki or something. And then where one came from mattered to the Jews. It was custom that the worshippers would watch the smoke spiral up out of the temple and they would all rejoice together. But on this day, nothing happened. It seemed to the multitude of people outside the temple praying that something had gone wrong. Perhaps they're thinking like in the Old Testament in the book of Leviticus when Aaron's sons were struck dead that Zechariah perhaps carried out the priestly duty wrong. But it wasn't. It was because Zechariah had been interrupted in his service by the appearance of the angel Gabriel. In the middle of Zechariah going about his duty and obedience, coming into the city when it was his turn of division to perform temple liturgy, staying in lodgings within the temple precincts and returning home to work as a teacher and leader in the local community, the angel Gabriel shows up with a message that would change the course of Zechariah's life, of Elizabeth's life, of Israel's life and of our lives. And here's Zechariah's response. How can I be sure of this? There is literally an angel standing in front of him and he's like, but how can I be sure of this? What more could Zachariah want? And often this can be our response, but we don't usually have an angel standing right in front of us. But we do know how the story unfolds. Zachariah, devoted rather than full of faith, 
showing up, praying for the coming of the Messiah, yet unbelieving when God has spoken. Yet the place that God still invades. Up until this point, he's described as righteous, and then Gabriel silences him for his unbelief. Yet Gabriel continues to say that these things, the good news, will come true at their appointed time. He comes out and he can't speak. He's trying to say that he's just had an encounter with an angel using his hands. He goes home and the account concludes with Elizabeth's joy at her unexpected pregnancy. He's just had an encounter with an angel and he goes home, back to ordinary life. Let's get real about ordinary life for a second. And now I do realise that I am going to be, uh, get some stick for these pictures. I am not very good at finding things on the internet, but I'm trying to show that this is ordinary life, right? Our expectation of the kids cleaning up with us, this is normally what it looks like. There's another one, next one. Waking up, awful picture, waking up, right? On Instagram, how many times do we see people like, just woke up like this? Like, no, you didn't. You woke up like that or in some kind of chaos. That is not how we normally look, look like. Next one. This one. All the nice Instagrammable pictures of on my boat ride, in, in my dressing gown, I think she's in. And there's, I think there's one more. And this one. I'm continually seeing people like, jetting off here, jetting off there. And I'm sitting at home, right? I don't do this, but I'm sitting there like, really? That's just not my life, right? This is ordinary life. It doesn't look like a bunch of beautifully created pictures. Yet, it is the place for the extraordinary. It may look like nappies, getting bottles ready, drop-offs, pickups, homework, trying to get through dinner without having meltdowns. It might look like crawling out of bed in the morning, going to work, coming home, prepping dinner, eating, eating alone, going to bed, repeat. Or it might look like doing uni work all day at a desk. That is ordinary life. Yet, as N.T. Wright says, God regularly works through ordinary people doing what they normally do, who with a mixture of half faith and devotion are holding themselves ready for whatever God has in mind. It's funny, my parents often remind me that life is ordinary, as if I hadn't already got that. But the reason they say this is because I can sometimes be a little unsettled with the ordinary. I need to have things to look forward to. I like to plan. I like to keep busy. I thrive off the adrenaline of the highs. And the truth of this is, it's because I'm uncomfortable. I'm uncomfortable with the ordinary, because it's the place where I'm confronted. I'm confronted with my limits, my pain, my brokenness, my doubts, life's uncertainties. And I have, and I come to the realization that life doesn't always look like the way I want it to, or how society or social media tells me that it should look. The ordinary, it's a place of vulnerability and uncertainty. Maybe for some of us, it's a place where unfulfilled promises and dreams lie. It's a place where we're met by grief, met by heartache, the grief of a loved one, the grief of a relationship, or the grief of a friendship. The place where we are confronted with the relationship breakdown, the place where we feel that we are failing at trying to meet the demands of life, of being mum, dad, husband, wife, or living with the agonizing pain of hoping to be one. And also this moment that we are in right now, it's uncertain. 
The news talking about COVID is on the rise, especially here in Northern Ireland, there's a new variant. And the world kind of goes into a, a state of panic and fear. Yet, these are the places, yet these places that, say, that seem humanly hopeless are the places where God's spirit seems to hover over. And it's in these places that he removes shame and disgrace and replaces them with wonder. God's interruptions fill emptiness with hope and promise where there is none. These are the places that we receive him, that he invades. My next point is a people of remembrance. So often it's our habit to forget. We forget the story that we are living in. We tend to live from one blessing to the next. And when our memory of the last blessing fades, we become weak in our door to God. We question his activity and his presence in our life. Yet we serve a God who does not forget about us. Zachariah, Zachariah and Elizabeth's names are significant here. Zachariah means God has remembered again. And Elizabeth means my God is an oath. Together you have Mr. and Mrs. My God has remembered his promises. 400 years of silence and now Israel has a priest whose name is my God has remembered again. Going about their ordinary lives, living with the pain of desiring a child who will now have a son that will fulfill the biblical promise that God had, God had spoken of sending someone to prepare Israel for the coming of the Messiah. The scriptures have foretold that the prophet of Elijah would return one day to get the people ready for God's arrival. And Gabriel tells Zechariah that this will be John's task. I don't believe in coincidence. I believe that we serve a God who remembers and knows how to keep time. He was setting everything in place in the history of redemption, all to point to the birth of Jesus, which would be the next great event. His plan was unfolding. And in the middle of his plan, as N.T. Wright says, the hopes, fears, and needs of ordinary people are not forgotten in this larger story, precisely because of who Israel's God is. The God of lavish, self-giving love, as Luke tells us in so many ways throughout his gospel, when this God acts on the large scale, he also takes care of the smaller human concerns as well. The drama which now takes center stage is truly the story of God, the world, and every ordinary human being who has ever lived in it. That's how Luke intends it to be. God remembers and cares about the big stuff, the all-encompassing stuff, but he is also a God who deeply cares and remembers about the small stuff. You see, here's the thing. When Gabriel says that your prayer has been answered, I'm not sure Zachariah would think it was to do with Elizabeth's barrenness. Perhaps he didn't pray for a child anymore. He knew they were too old. The time had passed. Yet, the angel's words are to the effect that Zachariah's prayer for the Messiah coming had been answered and in such a way that his own son, born miraculously to this elderly couple, will have a part in announcing the Messiah's arrival. God's seen Zachariah and Elizabeth's pain as they were longing for a child. He's seen the reproach that they were met with and he cares. And it's often the small things that come between our belonging to God. It separates us, pushes us away because we get disappointed. Disappointed that things haven't turned out the way that we'd hoped. And it's okay to feel disappointed. It's healthy to, to process it and to acknowledge it. But it's not okay when it becomes our heart posture. 
when it stops us from allowing Jesus to come into the places that are hurting. There is also an enemy, an enemy that is a liar. John 10, 10 says, the faith came to kill, steal, and destroy, but I have come to give life and life to the full. Life to the full, that's what I want. I want life to the full. And it begins in these places. And I think as well that as I read this, that we need to become, we need people of remembrance for each other. Even this morning, as the shutters wouldn't come up and everyone's like, what are we gonna do? Is church gonna happen? I kind of stood there in awe of the people that were around me, the people who know who they serve. They know who their God is. They remember the story that we're living in. They remember that God is on the throne and he's active. He's active in everything, in the ordinary, in the pain, in the good, when the shutter doesn't come up. All of it, when we're uncertain, he's there. We need to be people that are reminding each other who God is, the God we serve. Maybe you're struggling to connect with Elizabeth and Zechariah's story. And to be honest, at first, so did I. There's plenty of things to fill life in our headspace. And as, re- as I reflected on this passage, God spoke to me about the places that I wasn't giving him access to. I wasn't letting him in, him in. And the truth is that maybe some of the things we desire may never happen. Maybe you won't get the job that you hope for. Maybe you won't meet the person you'd like to and get married. Maybe you won't get the family you dreamed of. I'm not undermining these things. I get that these are heartbreaking when they don't happen, but they're not the end goal. These things are not wrong to want or desire, but the end goal of our life, what we really want is Emmanuel, God with us. This story is inviting us to feel at home here, home in the ordinary with all of its uncertainties and pains and fears, because it's in this place that prepares us for what's coming next in the story. Our vulnerability is the doorway to grace, the doorway to receiving him. I love um, a part of the song, O Little Town of Bethlehem, it says this, how silently, how silently the wondrous gift is given. So God imparts to human hearts the blessing of his heaven. No ear may hear his coming, but in this world of sin, where meek souls will receive him still, the dear Christ enters in. Meek. Have faith and devotion. Ordinary life. Yet, the place to receive him. It really is part of the mystery of the Christmas story. The God's eternal plan to send Jesus into our world rests on a simple yes from ordinary people like you and me. Before we worship, I want to be honest. Prepping this talk has been really tough. There's been lots of distractions and hard things that I've been confronted by. And it took some time for me to process them. And when I did, he was there, ready. Ready to receive me, speaking to me, breathing in hope and wonder and life when I felt like I had none. It made me think of the times growing up when I was adamant that I was independent and could do, do things on my own. My parents would just stand there lovingly watching me, knowing that I needed them. And then I would come to the place that I came to them. And they were there, watching, waiting to receive me. And I realized just how much I trust God in the big things, right? Yes, God, he'll take care of that. 
It's the small things that I struggle with. It's the hard stuff. It's the everyday things. Do I believe that he will meet me in loneliness? Do I believe that he will meet me when I'm doing my uni work? With all, when all the situations of life are hard, do I believe that he's actually working and ready and waiting for me? And I realize just how often I project onto him the untrustworthiness that describes my own human condition. Yet time and time again, God is gracious. When John is born, um, Zachariah can finally speak. And remember this whole time that Zachariah hasn't been able to speak. And this is Zachariah's song. Praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel, because he has come to his people and redeemed them. He has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he said through his holy prophets of long ago. Salvation from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show mercy to our ancestors and to remember his holy covenant, the oath he swore to our father Abraham, to rescue us from the hand of our enemies and to enable us to serve him without fear, in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. And you, my child, will be called a prophet of the Most High, for you will go on before the Lord to prepare the way for him, to give his people the knowledge of salvation through the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God, by which the rising sun will come to us from heaven to shine on those living in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the path of peace. That's is the God that we serve, the God of mercy, the God that's with us every day in the ordinary. He's there and he's waiting for us to allow him in. I'm just going to invite Jamie back up. I don't believe that God is just speaking to me. I believe he's speaking to all of us in different ways. Maybe you think that your life is too ordinary for God to inhabit. Maybe you're just going about your ordinary mundane and asking, where are you, God? Maybe you've been disappointed. Maybe you're in the place of pain. Maybe emotions are being awakened in you for the first time in a long time. Or you're facing the realization that life doesn't actually look the way that you'd hoped it to or you want it to. But I sense that God is saying, I'm right here. I'm right here. Are you going to let me in? Are you going to trust me? I'm a God who remembers. I'm a God of mercy. I'm a God of grace. As we participate in Advent, I wonder what it would look like to be a people that hold anticipation and remembrance together as we give our ordinary lives to him, allowing him to inhabit all of it all of the uncertainty, all of the invulnerability. And as we sit here with Zachariah and Elizabeth, I encourage you to ask Jesus to reveal the places that we haven't trusted him with, the places that we don't allow him in. I believe that it's those places that he wants to awaken with suspense, trust, and wonder of what's coming next and how that changes everything for us.